the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. And we'll start reading at verse 33 and read down to verse 54. And we're jumping right into the middle here of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the whole movement of the crucifixion. Verse 33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, from the sixth hour, which is noontime, Darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, right? God's doing from top to bottom. And the earth shook, earthquake, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Foretaste of the resurrection. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. What we just read in these verses is, without exaggeration, the single greatest event in the history of the universe. It is at the same time both wonderful 
and terrifying, awesome and awful. It is the greatest possible demonstration of God's just anger against sin and, at the same time, the greatest possible demonstration of God's love for sinners. Words fail when it comes to describing the crucifixion of the Son of God. No adjective is descriptive enough and no superlative is great enough to even begin to express what happened 2,000 years ago on a hill called Golgotha outside the city of Jerusalem. And when you begin to see the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ for what it really is, you can start to feel that even to attempt to talk about it cheapens it in some way. In the same way that it's often better to simply stand in awe before the glory of a beautiful work of art rather than try to discuss and dissect and analyze it. But even though that feeling is noble, it is sorely misguided. Why? Because the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is not simply a timeless historical event to be gazed upon like a painting in a museum, but it's also the heart and center of the gospel message, the good news which is meant to be proclaimed to all the world. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. You see that? To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he says in the next chapter, Charles mentioned this this morning, In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I say again that the cross of Christ is not a bygone historical event to be looked back upon, but a living reality meant to be proclaimed. For the salvation of sinners, but not only the salvation of sinners, but also for the encouragement of the saints, right? I mean, think of the letters of the Apostle Paul. Think of how much space he devotes in his letters explaining the gospel to people who had already believed the gospel. Why? Because the message of the cross is not just the means by which sinners are saved. It is also the means by which saints are sanctified and encourage. The message of the cross is the means by which our minds are refocused, our hearts are warmed and directed to the things that are of first importance in our day-to-day walk with the Lord. So what I hope to do this morning is attempt to proclaim in some small way something of this awesome reality of the crucifixion of the Son of God. And I want to do that by focusing in on these three hours of darkness that are mentioned here in verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour, noontime, 
Darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. From noon until 3 p.m., darkness covered the land. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope that you will be convicted of the evil and the hopelessness of rejecting the salvation offered to you by God in the death of His Son. If you are a Christian here this morning, then I hope you will worship. Because that's the only appropriate response from a Christian when they see the cross of Christ again in a fresh way. And we'll begin here with a few general observations before getting into some specifics. And the first general observation that we must keep in mind this morning is that every aspect of the crucifixion, and by that I mean the whole crucifixion movement, from the betrayal all the way to the end, all of it happened according to the predetermined plan of God. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Predetermined plan. It all happened according to plan. And then in Acts 4, 27 and 28, the disciples prayed, saying, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, God, and your purpose predestined to occur. Everything that happened on this day happened for a reason. And everything had a purpose behind it because it all occurred according to the fixed plan of an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God. Secondly, I want to point out here that this three hours of darkness was clearly supernatural. It was something caused by God himself and cannot be explained simply on the basis of natural phenomena. For one thing, the darkness occurred from noon to 3 o'clock, which would have been the brightest time of day normally. On top of that, it occurred at the wrong time of year historically to have been some kind of eclipse, and it lasted longer than any eclipse or natural phenomenon could have lasted. In short, this was clearly a supernatural event caused by God himself, talking about this three hours of darkness. Thirdly, This darkness wasn't just a supernatural event, but it was a symbol, or more accurately, I think a sign, meant to point away from itself and direct us to spiritual truth and spiritual realities. God doesn't do things like this just to show off. I'll just make it dark for a while to show how powerful I am. It's not the way he is. He's trying to tell us something through this darkness. And the question is, what is he telling us? What does this three hours of darkness symbolize? What does it point to? And in response this morning, I want us to consider four things related to this darkness. Four different realities that were all present during the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, the reality of Satan and the powers of darkness that were at work during this time. Number two, the reality of God's judgment against sin. Three, the agony experienced by God the Father in the crucifixion of His Son. And then fourthly, the torment experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ as He became 
the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sin. The three hours of darkness symbolizes, points to all four of these things, and we'll consider each of them in turn this morning. So first then, the three hours of darkness points to the reality of Satan and the powers of darkness that were at work during this time. For years, unbelieving liberal Bible scholars have attempted to explain Judas's betrayal of Jesus in natural or psychological terms. You know, Judas was greedy. He was jealous. Uh, he was trying to force Jesus into proclaiming himself as the Messiah so he would fight back against Roman occupation, you know, something along those lines. But the Gospel of John gives us a very different picture. John tells us in 13.2 that the devil put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. It's a very simple answer. People just don't like the answer. The devil put it into the heart of, of Judas to betray him. And then in John 13.27, Satan himself actually enters into Judas to carry out the act of handing Jesus over to the authorities. Then when the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders come out to actually take him, Jesus says this in Luke 22.53, he says, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and power of darkness. You see that? He recognized that there was something much more going on than simply a group of men coming out to apprehend him. This is your hour and power of darkness. It's clear that there was an unusual amount of demonic activity taking place around the time of the crucifixion. And this is exactly what we would expect to see as this was the climax, the most important battle in the war that had been raging for century upon century between the kingdom of God and Satan's kingdom of darkness. Remember that before man was even created, Satan had already led a rebellion against God. He had already set up his own kingdom of darkness. By the time man comes on the scene, Satan's already fallen. So when God makes man in his own image and likeness to be his representative on the earth, Satan sees a golden opportunity to strike at God by attempting to get man to disobey God the same way that he did, by tempting man to rebel against the one who made him. Satan succeeds, of course. Mankind falls into sin, but the story doesn't end there, does it? Because God steps in and he vows to put enmity, to put hatred between Satan and the seed of the woman, between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. Therefore, instead of the fall being the end, the fall is just the beginning of a war between God and Satan that would rage on for thousands of years. And this battle would rage down through the ages as God continued to work out his purpose to redeem a people for his own possession, to the praise of his glorious grace. And all along, God's working out his purpose, and Satan is trying to thwart his purpose. And the Bible gives us glimpses of this at various points down through history. You have the devil inciting David to number the people. You have the Israelites falling into demonically empowered idolatry as a nation. But the war would take on an intensity like never before 
when 2,000 years ago God himself would become a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. No more, you see, did Satan have to resort to striking at God through a mere representative. Now he could strike at God himself directly. So he catches Jesus alone in the wilderness at a time when he's weary and starving, and he tempts the Lord with a ferocity that we can't even begin to comprehend. There was much more going on in that temptation than what would meet the eye. Walking by the power of the Spirit, Jesus passes the test and Satan's defeated for the time being, but it says that he only departed until a more, not, more opportune time presented itself. <laughs> Left him alone for a time. But that opportune time would come just a few years later as Satan enters into Judas in order to betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. Now think, beloved, think of the, the twisted joy. Think of the perverted glee that rippled through this kingdom of darkness at this time when Jesus was arrested. Satan was going to win. God was going to die. This was it. The Son of God hangs on a cross. The land goes dark. And the Lord of glory breathes his last. And it's over. And you see, we need to let this sink in because we know how the story ends, right? But the disciples, they didn't get it. Jesus had tried to tell them many times that he was going to die and rise again, but they didn't get it. To them, this was the end. Their Lord was gone. The one that they had left friends and family and homes to follow was dead. Evil had won. But as is always the case, it turns out that Satan was nothing more than a tool in the hand of God, used by God to accomplish his holy purpose. Satan thought he had won, but what he had actually done was seal his own defeat. Because three days later, Jesus rises victorious over all the powers of hell and darkness, rendering powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, disarming the demonic rulers and authorities, making a public display of them, triumphing over them through his death and resurrection. And beloved, he now reigns at the right hand of the throne of God until all of his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. All of them. Satan may have won a battle, but God won the war. The hour of the devil's greatest triumph becomes the very means of his defeat. Wouldn't you love the storyline of the Bible? But before the Lord Jesus could triumph over the kingdom of darkness, he first had to persevere through the three hours of darkness, which symbolized and pointed to this great conflict with the powers of darkness. That was waged at the time of the crucifixion. Secondly, this morning, I would say that the three hours of darkness is a sign that points to the reality of God's judgment against sin. 
And I say this because darkness is often used in Scripture as a sign of God's judgment. Think back to the time of the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 10, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Even a darkness which may be felt so thick, as like it was weighing on you. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Probably not a coincidence, three days, three hours. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Joel chapter 2, the Lord speaking, saying, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Amos 5.18, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. And then one passage here again from Amos I want us to turn to because this is amazing. Amos chapter 8. In the Old Testament, goes Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. Amos chapter 8. Verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed I will never forget any of their deeds because of this, Will not the land quake? Sound familiar? What happened at the death of Christ? Earthquake. Because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? It's a lot of mourning, the death of Christ. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. And I will make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. Now listen to this. And I will make it like a time of mourning... For an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. So you see again this thing of darkness tied in with judgment. Judgment against sin. So as we can see here the Old Testament often portrays darkness as a sign of God's judgment against sin and against sinners. And it often ties this judgment together with something called the day of the Lord that was coming. You probably heard that, this day, the day of the Lord, in that day. And there's other passages we could look at. This day of the Lord would be a day of wrath, distress, mourning, and, yes, darkness, as God judged his enemies and poured out his wrath on them because of their sins. And the people of God down through the ages in the Old Testament were waiting and waiting for this day of the Lord to come. They were waiting for God to rise up and to definitively judge his enemies, 
once and for all to take care of the enemies of God's people. They were looking for this day of the Lord to come. But years go by and nothing happens. (laughs) And then the time of the Old Testament comes to a close. And you see, we flip from Malachi over to Matthew. We flip a page. What you're flipping there is 400 years of history when God was silent. There was no prophet. Hundreds of years go by. No day of the Lord. And things just seem to go on the way that they always have. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, a voice is heard crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Flee from the wrath to come. John the Baptist. And there is a renewed expectation among God's people that the day of the Lord could be near. And then, as a condemned Jewish man is hanging on a piece of wood outside of Jerusalem at noontime, the whole land goes pitch black. Not for 10 minutes, which would be incredible enough. Not for 30 minutes. Not even for one hour. Can you imagine pitch black in the middle of day for an entire hour? But it wasn't even that. For three hours, the land, pitch black. What was happening? What was happening was the day of the Lord had come. But it had come in a way that no one had expected. God was indeed judging and pouring out his wrath and making an end of sin. But instead of pouring out his wrath upon the sins of his enemies, he actually takes the sins of his enemies and places them upon his beloved son and pours out his wrath and anger on him. The fierce wrath meant to be spent upon a multitude of sinners is instead concentrated upon a single man. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that we, the enemies of God, might be made the righteousness of God in him. Or as the prophet Isaiah said it, 500 years before Jesus was even born, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's what was happening. But know this too, the day of the Lord in terms of a universal judgment, when we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that day of the Lord is still most certainly coming. And the Apostle Paul says that it will come like a thief in the night. But until it does, beloved, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
for all who will repent and turn away from their sins and cling to the cross of Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, they will find that the wrath of God has been satisfied on their behalf. His righteous anger burnt itself out at the cross, and whoever clings to it will be safe from the fires of God's wrath that are still to come. The Lord Jesus endured the darkness of God's judgment so that all who trust in him would forever live under the light of God's smile. We've seen so far that this three hours of darkness speaks to us of the reality of Satan and the powers of darkness that were at work during this time, and then also it speaks to us of God's judgment against sin. Thirdly then, this morning, this three hours of darkness speaks to us of the agony experienced by God the Father in the death of his Son. We often have a very wrong perception of God in terms of what he experiences and in terms of what he feels. We tend to think that God doesn't really feel anything, that he's not affected at all by many of the typical emotions that we experience. But according to the Bible itself, God experiences pity, wrath, compassion, hatred, jealousy, grief, and joy. The Bible says he experiences all of those things. And we can see this clearly in the life of Jesus himself, who, remember, was the exact representation of God's nature, right, according to Hebrews 1. And in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we see rejoicing in the spirit. We see him being grieved at people's hardness of heart. And we see him weep bitterly at the tomb of Lazarus. Real emotion. But not only does God experience emotion, but he experiences emotion in a way that we can't because of our sin. What do I mean? Sin has wreaked havoc on our emotions. We cry about things that should make us laugh, and we laugh about things that should make us cry. We're messed up, and our emotions are messed up because of sin. On top of that, we don't often feel the proper amount of emotion that we ought to about spiritual realities. We don't hate sin like we should. We don't love righteousness like we should. And we all know what it's like to hear a sermon or read a wonderful passage of Scripture and to walk away cold and lifeless. You see, we're messed up in our emotions. But such is not the case with God. He always feels, and I get this, this is amazing. He always feels the proper amount of emotion in terms of degree and in terms of intensity. Things that are worthy of hatred, he hates perfectly. Things that are worthy of love, he loves perfectly. And things that are worthy of being grieved over, he grieves over them perfectly with the perfect amount of intensity and degree. And what event in the history of the universe called for more grief or more sadness than the crucifixion of the Son of God? What must it have been like for the Father to experience it? Consider the account of Abraham in the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah are married in the land of Haran, and as married couples usually do, they start to think about having children. 
But years go by. Years. And Sarah is unable to conceive. More years go by. And no matter how much they pray and weep and cry out to God, Sarah remains barren. And they finally give up and just resign themselves to the fact that they're never going to have children of their own. And then the word of the Lord comes saying that at a certain time, he was going to give them a son. And the whole thing is so ridiculous because of their age that they can't even believe it. But it's true. And when Sarah is 90 years old and Abraham 100 years old, their son Isaac is born. Now, can you even begin to imagine the joy in that household at the birth of Isaac? Several years go by. Abraham learns what it means to be a father as his love for Isaac and his joy over him grows and deepens. Every parent knows what that's like. As his joy over him grows and deepens more with each passing day. But then the unthinkable happens. And let's pick the story up right there in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Starting in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now, now listen to this. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. He could have just said, take your son. He doesn't say that. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, right? That only son should ring a bell. We'll come back to that. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning. Imagine the torment of the evening before. Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Now listen down through here, this repetition, father, son, father, son. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said... Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, just over and over again. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Your son, your only son, your son, your only son, over and over again. Why? Because it's prophetic. It's no accident that language is used over and over again throughout this passage. Now what's the point? In reading about Abraham here, the point is this. Abraham was allowed at the end to spare his son Isaac and to sacrifice the ram instead. But, beloved, God did not spare his own son. That's what Romans 8.32 says. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? See, Paul's going back to that passage. He's saying, look, Abraham was allowed to spare his son, but God was not. He did not spare his son, his only son, whom he loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. (laughs) That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What must it have been like for the father to do what he did? What must it have been like? The song says, How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. I mean, we can perhaps imagine in a small way what it would have been like to be called upon to do what Abraham was called upon to do. But nothing can begin to compare to what the father went through in giving his only begotten son to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And so I say again that this three hours of unrelenting, pitch-black darkness speaks to us of the blackness of pain and grief that was experienced by God the Father in the death of his son, his only son, whom he loved. Lastly, then, today, I say that the three hours of darkness are descriptive, symbolic. They point to the sufferings experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And when we think of the sufferings of Christ in the crucifixion, we can think of them in two categories. First, the physical side of his sufferings, the mocking, the beating, the scourge, uh, the crown of thorns. 
the act of crucifixion itself, the nails, the wrists and feet. And then the second category would be the spiritual or emotional suffering, which included the actual bearing of sin, absorbing the wrath of God against that sin, and being forsaken by the Father. Now, we tend to focus more on his spiritual or emotional sufferings rather than the physical sufferings, and I think it's right to do that. It's true that in light of what he suffered spiritually, his physical sufferings pale in comparison. Not to mention that other people down through history have suffered worse physical punishment, just physical punishment, than what Jesus himself experienced. But one thing that I do want to point out, something that we don't normally think about, concerning his physical sufferings even, is that Jesus did not just suffer physically with the beatings and the scourging and so on, but he suffered physically with knowledge. And let me explain what I mean by that. In the midst of the beatings and the scourging, Jesus suffered knowing in himself that he was completely and perfectly innocent. He suffered knowing that. In fact, he is the only truly innocent person who has ever suffered as a criminal in the history of the world. Even a man who is wrongly convicted of some particular crime is still not completely innocent in the eyes of God's law because of other sins that he has committed. But in the case of the Lord Jesus, he truly was completely and perfectly innocent in himself. And he suffered terrible physical punishment knowing that to be the case. And surely that would make physical suffering even worse when you know in yourself that you are perfectly, perfectly innocent. But there's another side to this, what it meant for Jesus to suffer with knowledge, and it's this. He suffered all of these things, physical things now, knowing that at any time he could call on thousands of angels to come and to deliver him out of these sufferings. Isn't that what he said? Back at his arrest, you remember the soldiers are coming out to arrest him. Peter takes up a sword and tries to fight back. You know? And Jesus says, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers in it. It's a lot of angels. 12 legions of angels. He could have called on them at any time to ease his suffering. Again, that surely makes even his physical suffering more difficult to endure, knowing that at any moment he could put an end to them. But he didn't. He didn't for the sake of his people and for the glory of his Father. And then we move into the crucifixion itself, more of the spiritual side of his suffering. He's nailed to the cross around 9 a.m., probably around that time. Jeers, mocking. I mean, you can just read down through here again in Matthew 27. Jeers and mocking on and on, this onslaught, demonic onslaught. And then at noon, the sun fails and the land goes dark. And Jesus begins to bear the judgment of God against sin. 
Isaiah 53, 6 tells us that the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's what was happening during that time. 2 Corinthians 5 again, it says Jesus was made to be sin. Incredible language, made to be sin. One person said that he came as close as you could possibly come into a relationship with sin without becoming sinful himself. I think that's true. He was made to be sin. What must it have been like for a sinless being to experience that? You ever thought about that? I mean, you know what it's like to read or to hear about some atrocious crime that was committed, and it just makes you sick to your stomach. But what must it have been like for the Lord Jesus, who is perfectly holy and hates sin with a perfect hatred, to then have sin placed upon him? And not only that, but to actually experience personally the wrath of God against that sin. The darkness goes on. The wrath continues. One hour goes by. More darkness. More wrath. Two hours. And then finally at 3 p.m., after three hours of darkness, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the suffering reaches its climax with that cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For all eternity, the Father and the Son had enjoyed a relationship of perfect love, perfect affection, and perfect joy that had never fluctuated and that had never been interrupted. Until now, until 2,000 years ago when the Son of God was hanging on a cross and the Father turned away and forsook him. Why? Because sin is so ugly and so vile and so worthy of God's displeasure that when Jesus was made to be sin on that cross, the Father had to turn away. <coughs> away from his son, his only son, whom he loved. These are not easy truths to hear. But brothers and sisters, we need to hear them. Because when we read in 1 Corinthians 6, for example, that we were bought with a price, we need to know what that price really was. And when we read in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, we need to feel just how great of a demonstration it really was. And when we read of the sacrificial life of someone like the Apostle Paul with all of the kingdom expansion and the gospel fruit that his life bore, we need to know what could possibly inspire and motivate such a life. Well, Paul himself tells us, right, in Galatians 2, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's all it took. Because when you see it, that's all it takes. 
The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you can say the same. The songwriter Isaac Watts said it in his own way in one of his more well-known hymns. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? (laughs) Was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Notice how he picks up on this theme of darkness. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Finally this morning, if you're not a Christian here today, I just want to exhort you again to give up on trying to be good enough in yourself to merit God's blessing. After what you've heard this morning, do you honestly think that God would have done what he did if it was not absolutely necessary to save you? If it was possible for men to earn their way to heaven by their own good works, the Father never would have gone through what he did. Right? Surely you can see that. And by not repenting and trusting in Christ, you're telling God that the cross really wasn't necessary. That's what you're doing. Thanks, God, but no thanks. I can handle this sin thing myself. I can deal with it myself. Sorry, Jesus. Didn't need it. Don't believe it. You can never make yourself clean enough to stand before the one who is holy, holy, holy. Even your righteous deeds, the Bible says, are nothing more than filthy rags in his sight. Even your best works are unclean. But my friend, God has made a way for you through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, if there was any other way imaginable to save fallen humanity, God would have done it. But this was the only way. So praise him this morning. Praise God for the lamb who was slain. And glorify him today by putting your trust in him. That's all he wants. Give your life to him. It's the greatest honor you could do him. Is just trust him today with your life, with your soul, with your eternity.